Hey, everybody, this is the Drew Spirience, the show that is 80% combat sports and 20% everything else. Today's guest has been a long time in the running. I have to really thank uh, Sensei Nicholas Pettis for recommending him after I hosted Nick. Nicholas said, I think you should get this guy on your show. This guy is so accomplished. I have to read his accolades. I had to, I had to take, I had to write the list out. His accomplishments and accomplishments include, let's first start with uh, boxing. He is the WBO Foundation heavyweight champ, the WBO Asia Pacific heavyweight champ. And when it comes to when it comes to kickboxing, he's the ISCA world heavyweight champ, K1 2003 Australian champ, Kyokushin. Oh boy, yes, he does have a Kyokushin background. And his accomplishments, he is the South Pacific champion from 1999 in the open weight tournament, the 1999 New Zealand open weight Kyokushin champ. He's also competed in Bellator MMA, so he's a pro fighter as well. He is the one, the only Peter, the Chief Graham. Welcome to the Drew Spirience, Peter. Hey, Drew. How you doing, man? <laughs> Hope you like the intro. Yeah, it was a great intro. Uh, you... Uh... You got most of it right too, so that's pretty good. I, I got to, uh, I can update you. I don't know when that was. Sorry, I'm just going to set this up so it sits a little better. Yeah, take your time, buddy. Uh, so a bit disorganized because we just had a whole bunch of floods in my house, and I just got into the into the gym, so things were a bit crazy. So I'm also a WPF uh, boxing heavyweight pro world champ. Uh, uh, I was an undefeated amateur novice kickboxing world champ. I made it to the Bellator finals, actually. I lost on points to uh, Czech Congo, which, of course, is the UFC heavyweight champ. Uh, uh, so, well, you know, and also a Thai boxing world champ uh, mm -hmm. as a pro. So 137 pro fights, so over 17 years. And I guess on average that works out to be about one every two months for 17 years. So in other words, you know, when I tell people, I say, hey, you know what, fighters got to fight, you know, and, you know, you know, they're like the Kyokushin way of life, you know, train, fight, train, fight, eat, sleep, train, fight. You know, that's what I did for a long, long time. Awesome. Yeah. And you and now you're living now you're living the fruits of your labor, doing what you love, owning a, a, a gym and a proud owner of a, of, a, of a very beautiful English bulldog that we met before recording. It's just enjoying her little nap there. So, Peter, I want to ask you because, you know, you're so you've done so much and your story is pretty crazy based on what I've, I've looked up. And, you know, when I spoken to others about it, like I say, it's out of a movie. But let's start with how did you discover martial arts and why Kyokushin at first? How I discovered martial arts is it was. <laughs> I guess it was. You know, I watched too many martial arts movies as a kid, right? I watched, you know, The Karate Kid, you know, like every single one of them. Uh, and, you know, you, there was that thing in my head that said, you know, this is awesome. You know, I you know, always liked it. I actually thought uh, uh, I wanted to do the martial art that had the... Um, the slightly cooler flag. You got to remember, I was as a kid, and I was a bit silly. so. I thought the Korean flag looked a bit better than the Japanese flag because it mm -hmm. had the extra little things on it, a bit more colorful mm -hmm. than a, you know, the the red sun on the white background. But anyway, I used to live in a refuge, and I used to walk. Uh, I was kind of you know slightly wayward to say the least. You know, I was about seventeen, almost eighteen, and I used to walk past this Kyokushin Dojo, 
you know, almost every day because I was going to a bottle, a bottle shop because I used to get drunk with my friends and hang out. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I'm almost 18, you know, because I went to so many different schools. I went to about 17 different schools and I, you know, I just moved all the time because I was in, uh, you know, what they call young homeless accommodation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was a street kid. I said, man, I've got to do something with my life. And there was this dojo and I just walked in and I walked up to the guy behind the front counter. I said, hey, man, uh, I want to become a karate champ. What do I got to do? <laughs> yeah, I know. I was that crazy kid. Anyway, and the guy, his name was uh, Giovanni. And he told me after, he said, he went back behind the counter. He said, man, this big crazy kid walked in. And he said, man, he's crazy as hell. And he goes, oh, what happened? He said, yeah, I just, he said, oh, he said, what's, you know, how, did, how does he become a karate champ? Anyway, he told me years later, he said, Pete, but you had the last laugh because I, he told me, he said, come back at six o'clock. And I did that and I never stopped. Uh, I just remember that first time I turned up in a pair of basketball shorts and a singlet. I started training and I'm like, please, oh, shit, we're doing, you know, reverse punches. And I'm like, trying so hard, you know, and I was like, ah, oh, fuck. And my sensei said, who said that? I said, oh, yeah, sorry, mate. <laughs> goes, yeah, sorry, mate. Boss. I said, yeah, yes. No, boss. He goes, don't you ever swear in my class again. Oh. I'm like, oh, yeah, no worries. He said, not, yeah, no worries. He's boss. So, all right. He goes, not all right. Boss. <laughs> anyway, so that was kind of my first day. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> That's wild. Now, and so you, so you just walk in there and you said you're 17, 18. When did you start to recognize your talents in Kyokushin that you could? really a go far with this uh, you know what i wasn't really a confident kid or you know i had what's the word bravabio mm-hmm. oh you know I, I like to talk to talk but really i wasn't confident I, I did it because i thought you know that that was all i had you know i thought if i don't do one thing i'm not going to be good at anything mm-hmm. uh i didn't think i was going to be academically good at anything so I just said, look, just do one thing and just stick to it. So I, you know what? That feeling of oh, I'm I'm good or I'm better than other people never really happened. I, even when I was winning world titles and I was a pro, and you know, when I signed a K1, I, I felt happy. I knew I wasn't terrible at it, but I know I was almost too scared to think, oh, hey, I'm good. It's almost like my lack of self confidence pushed me to be a better person because you know it's like. One part of me was like, you know what, Pete, you're not a natural athlete. Like I used to smoke cigarettes when I was a kid and I went, you know what, you know, you already probably messed up your health anyway. I said, you can't afford to do anything wrong. You know, and I just said, well, if these guys train every day and they're good, I'm going to have to train at least twice as much to be as good as them. And if I want to be better than them, I've got to do it three times as much. And to say that I'd never felt good doing anything else almost is you know is almost an understatement i just i just never did anything anything else i just never started anything because i just started and then i'd have to move again mm-hmm. so when i started doing kyokushin it was like the first time in my life that i'd lived in a kind of permanent place you know as uh you know ever since i was a little little kid when i still lived in you know my family's home uh and i just said that's it man you you got to do this and you got to give it 150 percent and I just said, I got to do it more than everyone else. 
And so I just put my foot down 100%. Within two years, I'd moved to Japan to become an Uchideshi. Whoa, that's, that's crazy. So, so you're coming, so that, so because of your, um, so basically, do you feel that because of all the moving you did, because of the lifestyle of the childhood you had, do you feel Kyokushin gave you some form of stability with the network that you established in your school? Uh, absolutely. My, my first sensei, uh, his name was Graham Porter. He was what I thought a man should be. You know, he was tough. He was respectful. You know, he owned a business. He had a beautiful family and beautiful wife. Uh, and he just seemed to be successful and confident in everything. I went, I, I want that. I want what he wants. Uh, and, you know, he showed me through his actions that discipline will equal success. And I just went, I'm, I'm going to be like this guy. Uh, and I just kept that. I just went, you know, this is the way to become successful. And, and discipline in Kyokushin started to reflect slowly onto my personal life. And it really just became who I am. You know, just discipline, you know, short, medium, long-term goal striving. You know, just the way that, you know, karate is set up, you know, with, you know, either tips, you know, and then you grade and then you tip and then a grade, you know, and you, you know, you have the short-term goal of, you know, winning a small tournament or getting a tip, you know, a medium-term goal of getting to your next colored belt and a long-term, you know, goal of, of course, you know, becoming a black belt, you know, and that you know, those fundamentals work for everything, right? It doesn't matter whether it's a podcast or it's getting a black belt in karate or getting a university degree or having a positive relationship with somebody. Uh, at the time, obviously, I didn't realize that. I was just a kind of young, angry kid, and I just wanted to punch fuck out of people. And I thought Kyokushin was a great way to do it. Mind you, though, for the first, you know, the first couple of years, it was the other way around, but it really kind of, uh, was ab the absolute right thing for me. That's a, that's really amazing, and and I can and I I really love how you said it. It started to transcend outside of the dojo, and I can definitely agree with that. And it's amazing how when you get it's to quote Raja Ghoul from Batman Begins: If you devote yourself to something, you become something else entirely. Yeah, it's like the saying, you know. Uh, what is it? The master of all trades is better than one. But what a lot of people don't know is that the rest of that saying says, but it's better than being, uh, but it's better to be the, uh, what is it? The master of all trades uh, is better than none, but the master of one uh, is better again. I messed it up. But it's basically saying if, if you stick to it, uh, you know, you can achieve it. Very, very but, true. But then, it, but then it transcends. So I really messed that up. <laughs> Don't what worry. Is it, you know, worry. like start off with one, but then that 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 uh, that discipline in one area will creep into others, basically. Very, very true. So you recognize your talent, you start going, you become an Uchi Deshi. And what was it? What was that? What did moving away from Australia? do for you when as you were as you were a young adult how did it change you with the kyokushin you were learning in japan versus australia from your sensei grand porter so the the karate that uh, my sensei grand porter was teaching me was 
very, very similar. He, his, his understanding of the way to mm-hmm. teach Kyokushin was very similar to that of what I got when I was in Uchideshi. But the biggest difference was, is in Japan, it wasn't something you did. It was something you became. People started karate classes and didn't stop. It was amazing. Like everyone, they, they were there. Like there were guys coming in their lunch break, you know, Japanese workmen. And you could tell they smoked. They almost looked like they were going to die, these white girls. Uh, but they just kept turning up and they kept getting their ass kicked. But it, I, I realized that it's, it wasn't, and you know, they'd signed on for a way of life as opposed to an extracurricular activity that, say, you know, you and I might do in Australia or Canada or the United States or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Uchi Deshi is like a real chance for the Japanese to change their life and to, to devote themselves to something entirely new. Yeah, I was just talking about regular students, but oh. definitely, Deshi's definitely 100% was saying, we're in. Mm. It was almost like, uh, you know, a, a trade apprenticeship, but you go and live in the, you know, in the granny flat in the back of the guy who's teaching you how to be a carpenter's house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm going to turn the aircon on. If it's too loud, you tell me, okay? Yeah, that's fine. I will do. It's so humid here at the moment. It's like, <laughs> like almost a hundred percent humidity and it's been raining flat stick for a week. Oh boy. Uh, it's disgusting. Well, in Canada, it's pretty cold. We're getting over winter, but we're getting hit with winter storms every week. So kind it's it's kind of like Alaska here. So we don't have Canada cold weather in Australia. <laughs> You're lucky you have the beaches. We don't. We don't have that luxury. We have winter and summer and maybe fall if it doesn't snow and fall. Yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty it's pretty Sydney's a, a pretty nice city to live in. It's pretty good. It's pretty speaking of Australia though. I've asked Patrick, Sensei Patrick Pinto, shout out to Pat Pinto of Kyokushin Shuffle. And I want to get your take on this. Australasia is a kickboxing powerhouse, whereas you have Russia, that's the rest Russia and America are the wrestling powerhouses. What is it that you think makes Australasia such a kick, a striking martial arts powerhouse? I think maybe is that we have, well, we have Polynesians, you know, like you know Tonga, Samoa, Rotonga, you know the Maldives, uh, and we have Australian Aboriginals and Papua New Guineans. They're just strong, tough people, man, and they're just good strikers. And I guess, you know, boxing has always been something in Australia, of course. You know, the the first. Uh, black man to ever win a heavyweight world title was actually in Sydney, Australia. Mm-hmm. In Bay. Uh, so we've always had an affinity with striking. Uh, so, you know, wrestling has never been really big. Even judo, although it's kind of not unpopular, it hasn't been, hasn't had, you know, the kind of weight that say wrestling uh, has in the United States and America. So I guess, yeah, I guess that could be the reason. I'm not really mm-hmm. sure. I mean, we've had some really good promoters, and I guess we've had some good chance. We had Stan the Man Longanides, who was a kickboxing world champ, uh, and he, you know, really put it, you know, put us on the map for kickboxing. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you had guys from uh, New Zealand, uh, and then of course it blew up massively when Mark Hunt won K1, and then just became a wrecking machine through the MMA scene as well. 
uh, you know, and then of course, you know, before that was, you know, Ray Sefo and everyone loved Ray Sefo because he's so charismatic. And so, I don't know, maybe it's just that we've, you know, a few guys have really made it popular. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. There's also now, cause now like it, there's, there's like the forefathers and now today it's in MMA, the Israel Adesanya, Adesanya's, the Robert Whitaker's, uh, yeah. there's, there's quite a few other, like Australia's really become a hot spot, not just for rugby, but for combat sports. Well, yeah, well, you know, rugby league and rugby union and Australian rules football, you know, really popular, you know, contact sports, like really popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I think that, you know, you know I'll, well, no, a lot of the uh, you know superstars in combat, uh, sorry, in, in football sports, mm-hmm. uh, the odd boxing fight and things like that. So that's popularized it as well. I don't know. I think <laughs> I'm taking a guess here. <laughs> it's okay, hey man. Any answer is good. You're you live there. I don't. I'm just looking at it. I'm looking at it as an outsider, but you know your territory best. So that's what I had to ask. Um, you go to Japan now, so oh, yes, you're in Japan. You're doing Uchi Deshi and what, and now I wanted to ask you, what was that experience like in terms of what was going on in the Kyokushin scene back then? So it was, it was just after Sosai Masayana passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, unbeknownst to me, there was a lot of inner conflict in the upper levels. I didn't mm-hmm. know shit. I was a um, <laughs> white kid from Sydney. Uh, but I remember one night getting woken up in the dojo because there's the head dojo, but we actually lived in like some dormitories around, you know, the back of the block. And they wake us up in the middle of the night and say, get up, get up, get up. And we all got up and they running into the, uh, into the head dojo in Ikibukuro and holding these uh, weapons, you know, like clubs and nunchucks and, you know, batons. They're like, which one do you want? I'm like, for what? He said, don't let anyone in the dojo. I'm like, Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm from Sydney. I didn't sign up for gang warfare. <laughs> like, so what do you mean? So anyone tries to come into the dojo to take the building, you've got to stop them. I'm like, what the fuck? Are you serious? Uh, and this was all in, you know, broken English from uh, one of the Japanese Ujideshis. And I'm like, they're going, no way. So we're like, where, you know, where they put their shoes at the front of the dojo, we're just kind of hanging out there in the middle of the night. And I'm like, man, this is crazy. So all that was happening and, there was a lot of inner conflict, uh, you know, between the different factions, uh, and the the training itself was brutal. You know, it was uh, you know we trained two to three times a day, and uh, you know, you know I was just there as a something to to keep get kicked and punched. It's like you you're not Japanese, you're not a real Jideshi, you know, you're going home. Uh, yeah, it was it was brutal. But in saying that, there's also some type of camaraderie you know if you do it you know what you've done you know like maybe outside of Kyokushin or maybe even outside of the people who who haven't done the Uchideshi program don't really understand but the people who've definitely done it at all any of it I understand so you've done it you've been there you've you know you, you lasted more than a week yeah yeah I get it man you're with us because <laughs> it's that hard but you kind of but you 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 do the program um, and it changes you positively. 
it either breaks you or makes you. And it certainly made me. I came out of that. Then I started to get good. Mm. That's a, that's amazing. And during that time, so you came in when Sosai had just died. And where do you, where do you and uh, Sensei Nicholas Pettis cross paths during this uh, this period? Okay, so when I first went there, he was away doing something. So he came back after about two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was the uh, head instructor at Hombu, like the headquarters. Uh, and he's the only non-Japanese guy to ever hold, hold that position. And, you know, if the Japanese were tough, maybe Nick was even tougher. Uh, and he, he was just uh, non-stop. He was such an incredible athlete. Uh, and an incredible, uh, an incredible fighter, uh, but his training work ethic was second to none. Uh, so you know we'd be, you know we'd find these kind of uh, combat runs through Yogi Park in the middle of Tokyo. We'd be running all in through the bushes, and you know then we'd be doing sparring. And then he, you know, he really put a huge amount of effort into being the best coach he could be, and he was so focused and. You know, he really cared about us, you know. Like at that time, I was broke as shit. So you know, he he lent me one of his scooters. You know, he's you know he's helping me get some sponsors so I could get some you know some kind of you know at least a kind of cool tracksuit or something so I didn't look like I was homeless. It's probably so he didn't look like all his friends were homeless. But you know, it was cool, man. It was it was, it was really really hard, but I, I had an awesome time. You know, it was you know the ultimate fighter's life, right? You got no money, but you're having lots of fun. It's the experience. It's it's the experience that makes you rich, not the money. Yeah, you know, you work so hard, you know, for that goal of, you know, having some money or having a cool car. You know, for me anyway. By the time it came, I was like, yeah, it was. You know, it was almost like, oh, it's about time anyway. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't as good. Yeah, you know, and and when I look back, it was all the all the you know. You know, we went to so many different places, like so many crazy destinations and uh, had so many you know, fun times. You know, win, lose or draw, it, it was awesome. I mean, most of the time, most of us won. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's uh, the most important. Yeah. But that, that attitude, you know, uh, after I came back to Japan you know, the second or third time and, and eventually moving there, uh, you know, it was just a... You know, I guess it's like the world surf tour, right? You just want to stay on it. You know, you know what do professional golfers and surfers do on their day off? They play golf and go surfing. You know, if you're a fighter, excuse me, sorry about that. Uh, that's that's what we did. I mean, we didn't want to take a day off doing something else. We, you know, all you just talked about is, man, when's the next fight? When's the next fight? We train for a fight. You know, when K1 kind of uh, eased up in 2008, it was like. Well, we got to find something else. You know, it's like, let's go fight MMA. Like, I was 30. Whoa. You were ready to go, too. So that's my next question. So you so you basically, you're going into K1, and then you're going to MMA. But let's take it to K1. This is the golden era. So there's some big names still. You got Sam Greco. You have Globe Fetosa. You have Alistair Overeem, Remy Boyanski. But in March of 2006, you fight, a, you fight this up-and-comer bit of a upstart and a bit of a you know what not a cop not a bit of he is he is he is an sob he's pretty cocky goes by the name of Bader hari what went on in your head when you saw that the the 
bad boy in kickboxing for the first time? You know what we saw? Like I saw him, and uh, he kind of came onto my radar just a little bit before that. Uh, I think just after he knocked out Stefan Leko, it was Stefan Leko, right, with Baki. And um, they're like, oh, yeah, you're talented. But, you know, that kind of seemed to happen a lot in, in K1. You know, someone would materialize and go, wow, and they'd burn out quickly because you get a bunch of cash or a bunch of fame. And, of course, what happens when you get a bunch of cash and a bunch of fame and you didn't have much of that before is, you know, a lot of guys just destroy themselves or they can't keep up the pace. That's it. So they're there for a bit, but they don't. They can't stick around because whatever was motivating him dissipates. So, you know, I knew who Badahari was, obviously, and I thought he was pretty cool, and I thought he was getting a lot of attention because, uh, you know, he, he had the ability. Uh, and, and when I met him, he was such an arrogant fuck. I'm like, fuck you. Anyway, me and my best mate, a guy called Tony Dow, said we we uh, reviewed all his uh press conferences and i knew he was going to try to you know be a smart ass in the press conference uh and i watched him and i said okay man let's practice come back to this i said this guy's going to be so easy to stir up it's not even funny uh, i'm not, not going to have to do anything so he started waffling on and i knew he was going to bring up the thing about how old i was and i went please do it he goes how old are you, man? I'm like, I'm 30. He goes, you know, he's like saying, you know, you're old. Everyone else is old. And I thought, man, this is great. So uh, I really wanted to, you know, to get him off his game, to make him think about, you know, anything other than the fight. <laughs> and it worked to T. Uh, and the thing about him as well, his particular style, the way he fights, is he has a little bit of tight boxing because he leans back, you know, like a tie boxer does. Uh, and he has some good, you know, Dutch-style kickboxing. So they have a lot of the Kyokushin low kicks, but they also have good boxing. Uh, but one of the things that uh, that worked really well for me is the only the way that I set up a roll kick. It doesn't actually work for on everyone, but there's certain people who do certain things, uh, and when you set it up, it works tremendously. Uh, but of course, Batahari is, you know, an exceptional athlete. Uh, I, mean, I mean, that's where the exceptions finish, though. I mean, he's just mean and rude to everyone. I'm like, man, what, what's the problem with you, man? You know, everyone's trying to help you, and you're just acting like a, an asshole. I actually thought it was just him trying to be uh, make a name for himself, but he generally thought he was hard done by. I'm like, dude, man, every single person who makes the top 32, the uh, top 36, you know, everyone, you know, more. You know, they've all got a story. You know, either everyone was, you know, they were, you know, treated poorly because they were not like everyone else they grew up with or they were broke or they had dyslexia or they had, you know, horrible parents or no parents. Like, everyone's got a story, dude. It's like, you know, and and, and that's why they're, they're brutal. You know, there's that, that weird thing that happens that makes champion fighters, right? Instead of becoming violent, and destroying them live their lives because they, they they had that that one little kind of element that mm -hmm. makes them different and it turns them into phenomenal combat sports athletes. Uh, you know, you just have to hear about what Mark Hunt's happening in his life. You know, have you read Mark Hunt's book? 
I have not read it, but I have looked it up. And his he the way he what he became a pro fighter is straight out of a, a novel or a well, they made of his novel his autobiography. But yeah, it's out of a movie. He was like a bouncer, and then like they found yeah. him, and they're like, "Wow, this guy can this guy can throw hands." And then he was putting K one after and and pride. Yeah, it's, it's it's incredible. His story is is epic. But uh, but if you ever meet Mark Hunt. Uh, he lives just outside of Sydney. Uh, he's really nice. He's really cool. He hasn't changed one iota, and he's a worldwide superstar, right? Mm-hmm. But Badahari, if you're not famous or someone who's going to do something for him, he treats them poorly, and that's not cool. You know, it's like don't be a dick just because he can't help you. And even people who've helped him, you know, you hear these crazy stories of him beating him up and losing the plot. It's like, man, you got some anger issues that you need to really work out. Uh, he slapped a hotel clerk. Did you ever see the video where, where like he just comes in from the guy doesn't even know who Botter is, and Botter just comes up and just starts slapping the hotel. Like it's that's the kind of guy he is. Like it's like I don't know how you can be a fan of that guy. It's he he doesn't conduct himself properly. He's a dick. Anyway, so I, yeah. I knew what he was going to do. I'd watch his fights, uh, and he had a chink in his armor, and I thought, okay. Uh, uh, I was in great condition and he was in great condition. And I thought, okay, there's, there's only one real way to beat this guy. And, uh, you know, as I like to say, I had to bring karate to the party. I had to bring mm. something, to, you know, if I thought just like a Thai boxer or just like a boxer who kicked, uh, it wouldn't work. Uh, and sure enough, he fell for the way that I set it up. If you watch the first fight slowly, you'll see what I do. If you watch in the first round, uh, I try to set it up and he just uh, – just got out of the way so I, th- I what i do is i throw a uh, a slow right hand and instead of slipping into it it will slip back and that's when you can hit them uh and if they slip into it it works as well but slipping back works better mm-hmm. uh but the last round it was just a little bit more tired uh and i, I set it up i thought i, I got to throw in that last kind of couple of seconds uh and he walked into it you know the rest is history uh, you know, but what actually, you know, what really annoyed me is that the way the, the next fight we had, we had a rematch in um, Hong Kong, mm-hmm. and uh, for the whole fight, he just held on. And if you watch that fight, it's really frustrating to me. You're trying to set things up, uh, and normally in K one, if you hold on more than once, they'll take a point off and everything. But like, you know, he really got to coast in that fight, and then we had a third match in um, in Dubai, and what really pissed me off about that was. Uh, is that I had my first match. It was a really tough match. And I was exhausted. And he had a really super easy match. Knocked the guy out in the first round. So, uh, I think it was Stefan Leko, but Stefan Leko was in no shape to fight. Let me tell you, he was messed up a whole bunch of days before that fight. And I was like, man, it was crazy. Anyway, and then, uh, so Fatahari had this big break from the beginning of the, the, the show to the end. And me, I only had a 10-minute break. So I was exhausted. I went out the back. I said, okay. They're like, hey, you're up. And I said, this is fucked. You know, they're setting me up so he can knock me out. Don't get me wrong. Uh, this is something that all fighters have to deal with. Uh, but it kind of bugs me. It's like, you know what? In a perfect setup where things are, you know, set up evenly, then it becomes a, a much, you know, a better fight for everyone. You know, like a, like if it's a one-off super fight, him and me, and we both have the same set of conditions and things aren't leaning to one way or the other, like, 
you know, like short notice or they bring them over in first class, you get brought over in economy, you know, they get, you know, lots of time to know the fight's happening, you get a shorter time, you know, all these different things that can make it easier or harder for a fighter mentally because that's such an important part. You know, if you're mentally together on the fight, you know, it, it just makes it a lot easier. Uh, so, I mean, that was frustrating. But in saying that, it is what it is. And, you know, but I feel that, you know, when you look at what's happened in the past, you know, it's, it's easier to kind of say, well, that's probably going to keep going on. He just seems like he's just going to really mess his life up and wind up in jail for a long time. I call him the John Jones of kickboxing. I'm a fan of John Jones in MMA, but the thing is, I just think Bader never really had like that mentor that to like sit him down. Like you know, you had you had Graham Porter to say, "Hey, get some discipline, give you some structure and uh, some structure." Those people with like those with like that level of energy that high energy, as I like to say, they need structure, like to channel it in other ways other than just fighting. Yeah, absolutely. They need someone who they really respect to show them that. You know, I also had Nicholas Pettis. Nicholas Pettis was, you know, massively influenced all my life, all through K1 and stuff. So, mm-hmm. and I, I wanted to be a better person, not just a better fighter. You know, I was fighting to improve my life, you know, not just my bank, you know, my bank balance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's very smart man it's, it's all about who you surround yourself with so you move on from so you're in k1 you know you're doing k1 and you fight some of the who's who like Bader. uh you even fought uh zavi baramji if i said that right one of andy the late andy one of the late andy hoog's uh students uh, and you also managed to probably see the who's who like with Overeem, Feitoza. Was there one fighter in K1 that really stood out to you that you're like, wow, this guy has it all. He has all the tools to become an, uh, become one of the kickboxing's elite for them, for their Mount Rushmore. You know, uh, Alexander Ishnikov, mm-hmm. he was one of those guys. Uh, I think he's probably the best guy never to win K1. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, there's Mark Hunt as well. Uh, Mark Hunt was dangerous in the way that if you pause for a second and he hit you, it's thanks for coming. Mm-hmm. Now, I fought Mark twice. The first time that's happened, I beat him for 2.95 rounds out of three, and then I stopped for a second, hit me with the right cross, boom. Hit me with uppercut, boom. Hit me with a third uppercut, put me in my ass, I lost a fight. Uh, <laughs> But then, you know, three months later, I fought again in New Zealand and beat him. Mm. Uh, but uh, uh, Iznikov, uh, probably not say you probably got a better idea of how to say his last name better. Nick's always saying, Pete, that's not how you say it, man. I'm like, look, <laughs> no disrespect. But he was, you know, you know, uh, he was just such a talented tie fighter. He was so complicated. He had he had the height. So he was about 6'6". Six, six, what's that? Like two meters, 10 or something, uh, you know. Good weight, about 115 kilos or something, uh, and he was beating everyone. Uh, and I actually think that out of all my fights I'd ever had, I'd probably say he was probably not the most famous win. Batahari is the most uh, famous win. But if you ask me what I think is my personal best performance, I actually think beating uh, Izhakov, uh was my personal most technical win I ever had. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when when we got asked to fight him, I was looking with my coach, 
and um, uh, Alex Tui. And I started watching, you know, tape of his. And I'm like, I-, I can't beat this guy. He's doing everything right. You know, he's a bit taller than me. He's fit. He's strong. He knees well. He boxes well. He kicks awesome. He's got great offense and great defense. And Alex, too, he's always like, yeah, you'll be okay. He's really, really quiet guy. I'm like, that's it. That's all the information I'm getting. <laughs> he's like, we'll, we'll figure out the way. And, you know, we're training away. And after about two weeks of watching tapes and looking, I'm like, Alex, I, I just don't know if I can beat him. Not because I didn't have, you know, the, the, the willpower to fight. Uh, because I, you know, I, I never said I've never said no to any fight ever. Mm-hmm. Okay, if someone want to fight me, I want to fight. I like fighting. Uh, but then we found it. The only thing that he did wrong is because he was such a good striker. No one pushed him going forward. Everyone kind of sat back and you know checked and counter fought him and stuff like that. And that was just playing into him. But if you went up to him, doosh, 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 uh, he just kind of, and then held on especially because it wasn't Muay Thai, uh, it kind of threw him. He didn't, he didn't really like it. So then that's what we did. It was terrifying. Uh, we went to an extension. And then I remember in the last round, I, I, I had made a fundamental mistake. I went in and instead of grappling and holding tight, I kind of rested here and kind of looked to see what was doing. It. Boom, knee me in the nose, cut me across the top of the nose. Didn't knock me out, but I thought, man, that, that's about as close as that as I want to get. <laughs> Wow, wild. Now let's move on from K1. Now eventually you go and you get into MMA and you fought in Bellator and you became a runner-up in the heavy in season nine heavyweights. And you and you fought, you've not you said you fought Czech Congo, who uh, was one of MMA's uh one of the yeah, the, in the early days of the UFC, one of the best heavyweights, and still in Bellator today. You also yeah. fought the current, uh, you also fought their first heavyweight champ, Vitaly Minkov. What got you what made you decide to switch from kickboxing and karate to, to mma and how did you get into bellator why and why also bellator say versus one fc or ufc like when you had when there was uh, those promotions so uh what happens is you know what happened to uh uh, uh pride kind of happened to k1 as well there's a whole lot of in a terminal, uh, Mr. Ishii went to jail on tax fraud or something. So K1 kind of imploded. Mm-hmm. And there was just no fights. Wolf going from fighting all over the t- uh, all the time, all over the world to, to nothing. I'm like, damn, I, I got to do something else. So I said, well, you know, we had um, Sengoku, mm-hmm. which was the new pride, you know, in Japan. I said, I'll fight MMA. Uh, so I started training MMA. And I thought, man, I, I just, I, I got to go from the top. Uh, so, I, you know, we, we got a fight. Um, what's his name? His name escapes me right now, of course, while we're recording. Uh, my first, anyway, so I had my first MMA fight uh, and I lost. Uh, and I lost five out of my first six MMA fights. Uh, but I took on some of the, you know, the best grapplers in the world. Uh and then uh, I moved back to Australia and things were kind of going from bad to worse. I wasn't winning. Uh, and then I st- started training with um, Larry Papadopoulos, who's uh, one of the, he was a sh- number one in the world for shoot boxing. And uh, he's, you know, he was a, he was a third down in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Nova Una and 
it was, you know, one of the top wrestling guys in Australia and stuff. So I started training with him and kept training, kept training, kept fighting, kept fighting. And then I got an offer to fight uh, uh, Iznikov. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, sorry, not Iznikov. Um, Emelianko, but Alexander Emelianko. Mm-hmm. Thor's brother, you know, the, the big kind of scary one with the big scary tattoo on his back. And mm-hmm. he's a big guy. Like when you see him, you go, he's not giving out, you know, let's be friend vibes. Like Badahari comes across a bit like crazy, mm-hmm. but um, Sasha Emelianko, which I call him as well, just comes across as don't 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 fuck with this person because he will he will he will beat you up or make you disappear, especially when you're in Russia, right? Yeah, so, so speaking, Russia. yeah. And uh, I, I I fight him in Russia, uh, uh, in um. The, the far east of Russia. Mm. And it is like, uh, you know, the gulag is like 10 kilometers up the road. You know, minus 20 degrees Celsius, just all mobbed out. Awesome place, man. I loved it. Uh, and I love Russia. It was such a fun, fun place. Uh, but a place that people don't pull punches. It's not a soft place. Anyway, so we fight in this ice hockey arena that they converted to a fight arena. And uh, I come out to this fight, and uh, they're like, you know, still drinking whatever they're drinking and talking to friends. And my music's coming on, walking out. Yeah, and they're like, oh yeah, there's that Aussie guy who's going to get thrown to the lions. And uh, uh, he, when he walks out, the crowd erupts. It's like freaking deafening. Uh, and. Uh, Wow, what a guy. That guy can hit hard. He, his boxing is really good. So uh, we're fighting in Draka, which is a big Russian MMA federation uh, for MMA, of course. And this guy can hit hard. And, like, he hit me so hard that I lost my taste and my smell for two weeks afterwards. So I couldn't smell or taste anything for two weeks. I came back, thank God. But anyway, uh I don't know if he didn't prepare properly, but he just wasn't really fit. And I smashed his legs. Uh, and long story short, I beat him. And they were just shell-shocked. It was like, damn. But that was it. That was a catalyst. I just, I, I had to beat someone. People were like, why are you taking this fight? It's so dangerous. Uh, I said, well, if I don't beat someone good, no one's going to watch me. And as a, you know, as a prize fighter, if you don't get anyone to watch you, no one cares. But going back to, um, to Bellator, uh, I, I, I was offered to fight in UFC a couple of times, but the money was just so bad. I'm like, I, I can't afford to live if I take that fight. Uh, and then they were kind of talking about, you know, changing the deal with the sponsorship. I said, I can't fight for $4,000. Mm-hmm. You know, all I do is fight. You know, I didn't have another job uh, and I fought all the time. So I thought if I'm, if I'm locked in and I can only fight once or twice a year for $4,000, like I just don't have, that money they're like oh but if you win the title i'm like yeah but i can make exponentially amount of more money fighting for these other companies uh and at that time bellator was coming up and they were offering all these things and i actually had some good uh u.s sponsors you know sponsorship in the u.s really works well uh so i thought okay we'll try that but even then uh the amount of money that they offered me uh even for the title fight was shit so i just went back to fighting and you know uh, you know fighting in russia and china and places like that which the money was way better 
And, and I guess FC just wasn't offering heavyweights, or they weren't really interested in heavyweights. So I, I never got any information, or you know, they never contacted me anything about that. So I just like just keep doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, also because there wasn't as many uh, MMA fights, I started you know I, I kind of started boxing again because I wanted to have more fights. It was you know the, the gap in between the amount of fights I was short, so started boxing again and. Uh, you know, work my way up to a WBF uh, pro world title, which was fun too. That's awesome. And when you fought, when you fought in Bellator, you uh, you fought, as you said, you fought Czech Congo. You then you fought uh, Vitaly Minikov, Mighty Mo, just to name a few. And then you had a little pit stop in the Polish in the European circuit uh, KSW, where you fought strongman Marius. Uh, I, I'm going to butcher the last name. That's why I have his name written P- down. Pujanov. Pujanovsky, and he's a Kyokushin fighter too. What what was that like? It was basically Kyokushin versus Kyokushin in the pro European MMA circuit scene. So we fought uh, in London actually, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a lot of Polish people who live in London, like mm-hmm. a lot, uh, and they packed out the stadium. And again, you know, I was the underdog there, but I had a real uh, feeling like, you know, maybe of all the fights I had, I said this is a fight I got to win for for combat sports athletes and martial artists because like, this guy's a strong man otherwise it's like sending the message out you can just take a whole bunch of gear and you can beat anyone mm-hmm. uh, and uh you know I, I thought he was uh you know for someone who was a strong man beforehand and put obviously a lot of energy and time into that when he changed over i thought hey you know he's actually pretty good but i thought he, he you know there's a good chance he could uh fall for you know a fairly simplistic game plan and he did it was the old, you know, jab to the head, fake the takedown and throw the uppercut. Uh, I call it the double tap, the gangster's technique. Bang, bang. Tap, bang. tap. Uh, and then jumped on top of him. Uh, and, you know, we try to use all the, you know, all the uh, things before the fight as well, you know, uh, you know, in the press conference and stuff like that. But I felt that he wasn't. I felt that he was really scared, and some of my people were saying, "Yeah, man, he, he's walking around. He's looking ne- really nervous. He was p- pacing up and down behind uh, backstage for like hours before the fight." I thought that's that's not a good sign. Mm. You know, people can be nervous and stuff, but pacing up and down for three hours or two hours before a fight just shows maybe you shouldn't be doing this. So you know, uh, he looks intimidating, but you know, he looks intimidating. You know, Combat sports athletes, you know, I tell this to people all the time. It's not a beauty contest. It's a fight. You know, look at um, Tyson Fury, right? It's a perfect example. It's not a beauty comp. It's a boxing fight. You know? Mm-hmm. We always, you know, it looks cool when you see someone who's ripped up and everything, but don't don't kid yourself. Just because someone's ripped up and everything doesn't make him a better fighter. It's part of it, you know, even to the intimidation factor or whatever. But I think real fighters know, uh, I don't give a fuck how many tattoos you got on your face. How, how much gear you've taken because you've got a six-pack or you've got, you know, a really super cool pair of shorts and you came in a cool truck and, you know, you've got a hot girlfriend because all that shit doesn't mean anything once you start to fight. It's like you want to fight, you know, yeah, I'm fucking going to hit you until you stop being able to hit me and that's the end of the show. And if you don't like it, fuck you. So true. That, it's that, that's a beautiful combat sports, right? doesn't matter if you're black. doesn't matter if you're white. doesn't matter if you're you broke as shit. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish. Doesn't matter anything. No, when you step in the ring, it's just me versus you. And if I trained harder and I put more effort in and I knock you out, 
doesn't even matter if the judges don't like me. It's like, suck them, bitch. I'm the fucking champ. And that's what I like about it. It's where you get to turn something shit or something that, you know, drives you into being something positive. And, you know, that's why it's, that's why I love combat sports, man. This is like so awesome. It means, you know, if you are the underdog, if you are the nobody, you know, you, you don't have to have, you know, $20,000 a year to go to a really good uh, football, soccer training school so you can make it to the Premier League or whatever the big league of football is. You know, you don't have to have an expensive pair of pads and stuff to play like, you know, like American or Canadian football. You know, you don't even have to have anything. You know, if, if you can get yourself into a gym and there, there's places, you know, in the poorest areas, you know, there's gyms that you can go to. If you put in the hard work, they'll, they'll let you train for free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Very true. And And, you know, I think, Mark Hunt shows it. I show it. You know, there's zillions of people who showed it. He says they don't care. You know, yeah. If if you keep winning, especially if you keep knocking them out, like Mark Hunt was such a massive underdog when we went to the K1 finals. They're like, oh yeah, there's this you know kind of short, fat Polynesian guy, ha ha. And then he's like knocked everyone the fuck out, and everyone else is like, ha ha. You know, <laughs> and, and that's you know, that's, that's what it's about. You know, it's like, uh, like when I joined the gym that I joined that he was in, it was full of, uh, it's, it's an Aboriginal, Australian Aboriginal and Polynesian gym. And you may have noticed that I am neither Aboriginal or Polynesian. Uh, so the, the warm welcoming I was expecting didn't happen. No, I wasn't expecting a warm welcome. It was like, are you, are you lost? <laughs> like, are you a cop? Are you like, and even the area that it's in at that time was, you know, it was not really great for someone who looked like me. It's like, you, this is not this is not the gym for you. Go go and play football. You're a big white guy. You know, get out of here. Or you can't do it. You know, you're a heavyweight fighter who's white. What are you, an idiot? You know, <laughs> Super true. You know, it's like, you know, it's uh, it's you know, it's the same old story from different people. You know, with slightly different you know uh, sets of events and circumstances. Super. Yeah, it's super true. Is there a particular fighter you like? I mean, like, I know, like, now you're retired. Is there a particular fighter you like watching today that may that that whose style you uh, you like to watch in uh, MMA? Uh. Yeah. To be honest, at the moment. It's a little bit bland, mm-hmm. you know. Like when uh, the UFC was kind of, I feel like within the last couple of years, the UFC has kind of got watered down a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they don't have that kind of core group of badass fighters that are just murking each other. It's like it doesn't matter if they're fighting for the title. It doesn't matter if they're the top two guys. You know, it could. It, one of 10 different people. Uh, and that was exciting. It was like K1, you know, you're like, every fight was good. Anyone who was in the top 36, you know, top 16, and they were fighting, it was a good fight. You know, it was like uh, uh, pride, you know, like every fight was good. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, I kind of feel it's a little bit like that. There's like only like a couple, is it, you know, like, oh, this guy's making us all the money, so we'll put him on. And it's like, yeah, like, you know, McGregor, yeah, I like seeing him fight and stuff because he's excited. But 
but everyone else is a bit is a little bit bland. Yeah. Not not massively. Um, uh, Sandy is, is is cool, you know. Uh, you know, and I, I like to watch you know, the Australian flight, but I just don't feel that same energy as around. It seems like just water down a bit. No disrespect to the fighters, you know. But like uh, mm-hmm. it's more of a, the way the promotions are set up. Makes sense. And my last question is, uh, so my, this is the last question I want to ask, you know, you've done it all, you know, now, uh, you made, you, you really accomplished it, becoming a gym owner too, being good with your money and all in, in all your journey. And how has becoming what, like, what do you, what do you hope your impact is going to be on the future generations, whether it's children that just want to take martial arts for recreation or the adults that say, you know, or adolescents or adults that say, I do want to become a fighter. Peter, what can you teach me? What do you, so yeah, what, and what do you hope your impact to be on, on all different demographics? Well, hopefully it's the same that I had from other fighters who came before me, you know, mm-hmm. you gave someone the chance to become healthy and happy and confident and know that, you know, you know there's a, there's another avenue you know, especially, you know, I can't talk for women, of course, not being one. But when I, when I talk for men, it's like, you know, I was a young, angry kid, you know. Uh, but taking it out in a dojo and a gym and hitting a bag or training with someone who, you know, wants to fight made my life better. You know, if I did the same thing and I was in the street or, you know, you know beating my girl up or something like that, you know, this interview wouldn't be taking and I'd be sitting down talking to some, you know, uh, social worker in jail or something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the impact that I think I'd like to have is to say, you know what, I get it. You know, I, I get that you can be angry and frustrated and all the different things that young men go through, but the, the return on investment in combat sports and martial arts is a million to one. You get the right coach and your life can go to from, from really shit to really good. And I guess it doesn't, you know, you don't have to become the champ. But, you know, if you understand that when you're pissed off and when you're angry, you know, you take it out of the gym and, you you know, you progress through those ranks, say, as we were saying before, in like in karate or jiu-jitsu or something like that, you know, you become more confident and you become a better fighter. The thing is you become more confident and people are more confident, less likely to become angry, you know, and behind anger is fear, right? So they're less likely to be, angry because they're you know they're scared of being insulted or beat up or something so really they're just you know they're elevating everybody right the rising tide lifts all boats so whereas as that young angry kid becomes more confident you know the people around him are going to get better as opposed to him staying more angry and you know you know telling the boss to fuck off and hitting his girlfriend and you know just destroying his life you know maybe he'll get a promotion you know maybe that relationship with that girl who can do something good can become even more positive. And, you know, so if anything, and someone hear my story and say, you know what, it can happen. You know, I'm, I'm that guy. I'm, you know, I, uh, you know, I literally, when I started, I pretty much had nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, I lived in, uh, what they call a youth refuge in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly didn't have any money. It certainly wasn't cool. And because I moved so much, I didn't have any long-term friends. Uh, I didn't have any education. Uh, I certainly didn't have a family and now I have all of that. You know, I've been married 15 years this year to you know, my awesome wife. I've got two beautiful children and a great bulldog. Uh, 
I have, you know, a big successful uh, gym. Uh, I live in a beautiful house in a safe suburb right next to the beach. You know, I drive a cool truck. Uh, but, you know, above and beyond all that other kind of material stuff, I'm happy. I mean, my life is good. I'm like, and I know it, you know, because it was shit before. And I go, yep, that's cool. You know, you can look back and you can say, yep. You know, all the good things that you can get from combat sports and martial arts I got, and it works. So I hope that's a legacy I can leave with you. Awesome. And everyone else. Awesome, man. Really. And so once again, I just want to say personally, thank you so much for coming on the, the show and uh, where can people connect with you if they want to connect and, uh, you know, take up classes or just, you know, they want to connect, go to my Instagram. Uh, I think it's Peter, the chief or Peter Graham. It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's not fine. Uh, and if you're kind of old and don't use Instagram, you can use Facebook. Uh, Oh, you can Google IMC Australia. Uh, we got five dojos. Uh, mine's in Prospect, which I like the name of it. The actual name of the subject is Prospect as well. So you can become a prospect in Prospect. <laughs> and we got, you know, karate, kickboxing, boxing, uh, jiu-jitsu, MMA. Come down, have fun. Say awesome. friendly. From three years old to 300. <laughs> Perfect. Well, once again, man, I really appreciate you coming on. This was great. Glad we got to do this. Finally, an extra special thanks to Sensei Nick Pettis, who really put in uh, the encouragement, and even uh, Sensei Pat Pinto, who uh, I saw you were on his show. So uh, those two, you know, as I said, uh, we're raising the bar with uh, the fight game. Well, those guys are great. Yeah, thanks. I had fun, too. All right. I'll make sure to put the episode up. So, guys, make sure to subscribe, like, and share when you get when the conversation's done. Grow the movement. Thanks once again, Peter. Thanks. See you, everyone.